Father, we do thank you for your incredible gift of eternal life. You are good. We're not, but you are. And for forgiveness and for life, for Jesus coming and dying on the cross and for our sins and being raised from the dead. What, a, what an incredible plan. We just worship you now. And we have come and we've gathered together as your people. And we're seeking you and we want to hear from your word. And we ask that you would teach us and you would encourage us. And you'd challenge us as well. Help us today to see this great plan that you have for the church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 7 through 13. It's the last book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through Revelation verse by verse. We're in this section right now, chapters 2 and chapter 3, that deals with seven many letters Jesus wrote to these different churches and what we can learn from these churches. And today we're looking at the Church of Philadelphia, which uh, I'm entitling the Great Commission Church. And uh, so since we're calling it the Great Commission Church, I thought we'd show a little video clip. This was actually done by my son, several years ago when he was much younger. See if you can pick him out. We don't have time to watch the rest, but uh, <laughs> you got the point. There's a right way and there's a wrong way of sharing your faith, right? But the worst wrong way is not to do it at all. And God has called us to be a great commission church. And that's what I really like about this church, Philadelphia. We see that they get it right. The church actually had God's favor. If you have God on your side... You are the majority, no matter how small or weak you are. And they had God's favor because they had God's vision for advancing the kingdom of God. They took seriously Jesus' final marching orders in Matthew 28. Uh, Let me just read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is the Great Commission. The last thing that he said in the Gospel of Matthew to his church 
And he says in verse 18, it says, Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the church of Philadelphia got it. They understood it. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and closes and no one opens, says, I know your works, because you have limited strength, have kept my word, And have not denied my name. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Take note, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. Note this, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The victor, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. They may not have had much of an outward appearance, but they had God on their side, which is all that matters. Look out if a church has God on its side. I want to read something from Chuck Swindoll. He refers to this. He says, The size of a congregation... The limitations of its location or the restrictions of its budget should never determine its vision. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. God is infinite, magnificent, awesome, and mighty, beyond description or comprehension. When He chooses to open opportunities, the possibilities are endless. All we need to do is trust and follow Him wherever He leads. What we see in this mini letter to the church at Philadelphia, it takes the basic pattern that we've been seeing throughout all of these seven letters, that it starts out with a portion of the vision of Jesus Christ, the portion from chapter 1 that John had of Jesus. Then it gives a commendation to the church, and then a rebuke, and then uh, an encouragement for the promise for those who are victors. Now, this is slightly different because there's no rebuke. So that's pretty neat. This is is a church that got it. So we want to look at this church. And so we'll go ahead and start with the vision of Christ that it it reveals. And we see that in verse 7, a great commission church sees Jesus as awesome. He says, the Holy One. The true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and closes and no one opens. This is how Jesus is revealed. And by the way, 
We need a clear vision of Jesus Christ. We need to see him for who he really is. And that will give us the strength we need to endure whatever we have to face in this life and to accomplish whatever we, God wants us to accomplish. So a vision of Jesus Christ. So I thought I would read something from uh, a Puritan. You, some of you might know that I love the Puritans. I'm not sure if uh, you ever caught on to that or not. But let me read from Thomas Vincent. Uh, His dates are 1634 to 1678. By the way, you got to love the dead guys. Okay. (laughs) Listen to this guy. He says, what is it for Christ to manifest himself? What does that mean? Christ manifests himself when he makes a clearer revelation unto his disciples of the excellency of his person. When he further unveils himself and lets forth some beams and rays with greater luster and brightness to reveal more of the radiance and transcendence of his soul-ravishing beauty unto them, of which they had but a dimmer light and darker apprehension before. Christ manifests himself when he makes a deep impression and gives a sweet sense to his disciples of his presence. Christ is never really absent from such as love him, but he may seem to be so sometimes. They may apprehend him to to be afar off. He may and often does withdraw the sense of his presence. Christ manifests himself when he draws near to his people and makes them feel when he is near, giving them a sweet sense of his presence through the powerful breathings of his spirit upon them, whereby their hearts are quickened, enlarged, and drawn forth towards himself, and their graces excited unto powerful exercise. And chiefly, Christ manifests himself when he makes revelation of his love unto them that love him, when he gives them to see not only the beauty of his face, but also the smiles of his face, when he gives them to behold the amiableness of his countenance, when he sheds abroad the sense of his love into their hearts, giving them a full persuasion of his special love unto them and also a sweet sense thereof. That's a vision of Christ that he wants us to experience. We need that to see Jesus. And so each of these letters is a a portion of it shows and reveals Jesus specifically to the how they needed to see him. So let's look at this. What he, how he reveals himself to the church of Philadelphia. First he says, he is the Holy One. Holiness is critical to Jesus, and it is critical to the followers of Jesus. We want to see people saved in part because we don't want the devil to win. And he wins when we sin. When you get saved, God works on you. He begins this work, and you sin less, and his holiness shines. And so he is first called the Holy One. And then he's called the True One. Truth matters. You see, we're so, especially in our postmodern world, we're so uh, you know, just absorbed with our feelings that we've forgotten this absolute necessity that truth matters. I want you to turn to Second John verse, chapter 1, verse 9. It's just to the left. There's Jude, and then there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So it's just, and it's only one letter, so chapter 1 is the letter. 2nd John. But verse 9, it says this. <clears throat> 
Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. And what he's talking about there, see, John was one of the disciples. And Jesus spent three years with the original apostles, and he poured into them those three years. And Jesus, who is the full revelation of God in Christ, Jesus revealed to them what he wanted them to understand. And then he promised them that he would send the Holy Spirit to them and remind them of everything that he taught them. And he would explain to them what it all means. And so they recorded that. And that's what we have in the New Testament. The New Testament is the record of that final revelation and explanation of it. It's all we need for that final revelation. And what he says here is, if you go beyond that, you end up in trouble. And so adding to the Scriptures is not good. And so that's what he's saying here, because the truth is what matters. Not my ideas, not my feelings, not any of that. It's the truth that really matters. Isaiah 65, 16 actually says that God is the God of truth. And so, and this one, Jesus, he has the keys, it says. He holds the keys. He alone has the keys that let people into the kingdom. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and, he, and will come in and go out and find pasture. And so we see here that he is the door. He is the only way for us to enter into the kingdom, for us to be saved. No other religion satisfies both God's holiness and his love. And that's what the death of Christ does. It satisfies God's holiness. God poured out his wrath upon his son instead of us. So his holiness was taken care of. But that shows his love for us. He did that. Jesus was our substitute to show us his love for us so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty for our sins. And so Jesus is unique. And that's the vision we see here, first of all, of Jesus. And then we see that a great commission church is faithful to the gospel. Look at this commendation in verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works because you have limited strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. They did the right things for the right reasons, okay? And I want to show that to, by comparing them with some of the other churches that we've, been looked, that we've already looked at, okay? First of all, unlike Ephesus, did you notice there's no mention of the heart? With Ephesus, they had the right knowledge, but they had left their first love. Remember that part? Well, there's no mention of that because Philadelphia still had a heart on fire of lo- with love for Jesus Christ. And so we see here that it was their love for Jesus that motivated them. And that's very important for us to understand, okay? It wasn't that they were working hard because they were trying to earn God's favor, okay? Because they already had 
all the favor they could possibly have from God because God loves them with an unconditional love. And so they already had that favor. They weren't earning God's favor. And we need to understand that because legalism kills. When you add works to the gospel, it kills. It kills individuals. It kills churches. It kills whole nations. I don't have time to go into this in detail, but I've mentioned this before, that the way our country was founded, we see what was called the Puritans, by the way, came over, and they brought what's, what sociologists call the Protestant work ethic. And what that means is they came over, and they were hard workers, and they were honest, and they wanted to do a good 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 works and so forth, not because they felt like they were earning their salvation. They already had it. They already had this intimate, incredible relationship with God, but it was simply out of the gratitude of their hearts that they wanted to serve God. That's what makes a difference. You see, when you add the legalism, when you have to work and try to earn your favor with God, it ends up you don't work very hard. You'd think it was the opposite, wouldn't you? You'd think, oh, if God just put this, you've got to work real hard, otherwise I'm going to zap you into hell, or whatever, you know. You'd think that that would cause people to work hard, but it doesn't, okay? You can see this in America, North America. You can see it in Northern Europe, the countries that were influenced by the Reformation, the gospel of grace that were saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. Those nations flourished. The other nations that took a gospel of works with them, like South America and other places, they didn't flourish because works kill. They don't rescue or help even nations. Legalism kills. This church, they were hard workers, out of love rather than for what they could gain. And that's important. It's important for our church. You know how I like to embarrass somebody every now and then, right? Different people, right? And I I was thinking of this, and I was thinking, you want to know who really loves Jesus in our church? It's Jim Weeble, our youth pastor. I noticed that in him. He uh, was smart. He left because I embarrassed him in the first service. Uh, but uh, but I, I noticed that in him, that he has a deep love for Jesus. He loves to just get alone with God. I see it in him. It encourages me to love Jesus more. You see, we need people like that. And when, when, when you're that kind of influence, we should emulate our own lives around that. Love for Jesus. That's the church here in Philadelphia. They absolutely, so unlike Ephesus, they had that love for Jesus. But unlike Pergamum and Thyatira, you remember those two churches, they kept Christ's word. Did you see that? Did you notice that in verse 8? Because you have limited strength and have kept my word. They kept his word. And that's very important. I want you to turn to John chapter 8, verse 30 through 32. Jesus is referring to some people who supposedly believed in him. And he points this out. This is very critical that we get this. John chapter 8, verse 30. It says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Now, you notice, it's not the feeling that sets you free, right? It is the truth of God that sets us free. But he points out to them, if you continue in my word, you're really my disciples. True disciples continue in his word. That's what we're seeing with Philadelphia. It says that they kept his word. This is critical. And especially the word about the Great Commission. They kept his word. They wanted to share their faith. And they did it. So now notice this, this balance that we see. Unlike Ephesus, they had a love for Jesus. Unlike Pergamum and Thyatira, who had, maybe they had love, but they didn't have the truth. He, this church has both, both the heart and the head, both the, a mind for truth, but also a heart and flame for love for Jesus Christ. Both and, not either or. Ephesians 4.15 tells us that we are to share the truth in love. It's both and. In fact, there's a fascinating passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. It's actually talking about followers of the Antichrist, okay? But look, notice what it says about these people. It says they refused to love the truth. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Because it doesn't just say they refused the truth. It says they refused to love the love of the truth. Okay? It's all our our whole person is involved in trusting in Christ. It's both our minds and our hearts and in serving Christ. And they got it. This church at Philadelphia. And that's why they were all so successful in evangelism, because it says it, then it goes on to say that Jesus opened the door for evangelism for them. He gave them an open door. Now, whenever this phrase is used, and you can write these scriptures down, I have Colossians 4, 2 through 6, Acts 14, 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12. They all refer to this open door, and it's always referring to an open door for evangelism, for sharing their faith, where people were open to receive what they had to say. They had favor with the people they were sharing the gospel with. That's what it's talking about. And that is absolutely critical. I want to share of a time, it's, in my opinion, the most exciting time I've ever experienced in my entire life. I think my wife would agree. Uh, this was a time when we went to Russia on a mission trip. In 19, I think it was 99. What, what we had done, I was a part of a church. I was on staff at a church in Georgia. And we had, our church had sent two couples a year before to this place called Perm, Russia. Okay, probably never heard of the city, but it's actually in the middle of nowhere. But it's about a million people. So it's a big city. Okay, Perm, Russia. And we sent two couples there a year before specifically for two things. They only did two things. They prayed and they learned the language. That was it. So we sent them over. Then we came over, 27 of us. And we had, uh, we were there for 17 days. We had 21 translators that we had hired. And we just went around and shared the gospel. I wish I had time to tell you all the things we did. It was just it was amazing. And it was amazing because literally in 17 days, 
we saw over 100 people come to Christ and not just say a prayer, but plug into this brand new church that we planted in those 17 days, leaving these two couples behind, one of them who's uh, trained to be a pastor, to be the pastor of this church. And he continued to pastor it within, I think, three or four years. They had grown to 400 people and had planted another church. Okay, this is incredible. I got to see this happen. New Testament kind of like stuff, right? But God can do that today, can't he? Of course he can. Through nobody churches. Philadelphia, what were they like? It says they were nothing. They were a nothing church, right? I, I know your, your works because you have limited strength, but you've kept my word. That's the kind of church you can use, like Harvest Fellowship, Right? If we get this vision and if we have his favor, if he opens the door, anything can happen. And that is a great commission church is faithful to the gospel. And then we see the, the promise. Verses 9 through 13, a great commission church lives by the promise of God. And it starts out, verse 9, kind of, it's kind of strange. Let me read it here. Uh, he says, take note. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. Note this. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Jesus, he's saying, will humiliate his enemy, their enemies. He's going to take care of these people. Now, you've got to understand what was going on, okay? This is not anti-Semitism. John himself was Jewish, okay? So this is not anti-Semitism, but what was happening here is that The Jewish people, uh, many of them had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And then by the end of the century, which is when this was written, they turned on the church and began to fiercely persecute the church. And so they're under very great persecution from this group of people. And he's saying to them, God will take care of it. Okay? So that's his promise. But I do want to say that God is not finished with the Jewish people yet. Okay? Uh, some of the scriptures I have up here, Acts 3, 19 through 23, reveals that when a Jew rejects Jesus as Messiah, it says they are cut off from God's people. So they are cut off, and the picture of that is found in Romans 11. Where in Romans 11, it speaks of their broken off of God's plant, his tree, broken off in order to make room for Gentiles to be grafted in. So when we place our faith in Christ, we're grafted into this, the people of God, okay? They're broken off when they reject the Messiah, but then he goes on to say in Romans 11, how much greater will it be when they're grafted back in? Because in the end of time, The Bible tells us we will see a great influx of the Jewish people receiving Jesus as their Messiah. And they're going to be grafted in. We see this in uh, Hosea 3.5, Zechariah 12.10. But also, and I don't have time to go into this, but there's a great picture in Ezekiel 37. Okay? You remember the passage with the dry bones? Those bones, those bones, those dry bones. Anybody remember that song? Okay, yeah, okay, there you go. Okay, well, that's actually referring to the Jewish people. It says very specifically that this thing is going to happen in two stages, okay? Ezekiel 37, it says, first, they're gonna, their bones are going to come together, and they're going to be there as a body. And that's referring to the Jewish people coming back to their home. 
that at first they will come back to their home as a people. And then it says, and God will breathe in his spirit into them, and they'll come to life. That's referring to them getting saved, receiving the Holy Spirit, receiving the grace of God poured out that Zechariah 12, 10, and Zechariah 13, 1 speaks of. So they're going to get saved, but notice it comes in two stages, okay? The first stage has already happened. They're already back in their homeland after 1,900 years of wandering around, which in my opinion means the second stage is probably going to happen pretty soon. We're probably living in the end of time, the last days, as we will see as we go through the book of Revelation. But this, so God hasn't finished with the Jewish people yet, but this group here, they were persecuting them, and God's promising them he'll take care of them. Okay, and then he says this great promise. Jesus will protect them from the great tribulation. Look at uh, verses 10 and 11. It says, Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Now, he's clearly saying this to the church at Philadelphia, but I think as we've been seeing, these are also promises to God's people throughout the ages, and so this is a promise to the whole church. And specifically, he is referring to the great tribulation when he says, I will keep them from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Because he's going to go on and explain this hour of testing throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. So that's what he's talking about there. So now there are two opinions, okay, about how exactly this promise is going to be fulfilled, all right? There are the pre-tribulation rapturists and the post-tribulation rapturists. All the others really don't have any explanation for this, in my opinion. But but So so there's these two groups, okay? Now, before I say anything, because I'm going to actually present both sides, all right? Is that fair? But before I say anything, this is, a, this is something that we can agree to disagree agreeably on, right? Nobody's going to fight over this, right? Okay. So, so, we're gonna, so, so we want to look at first the pre-tribulation rapture and then the post-tribulation rapture view from this passage, all right? So for pre-tribulation rapture, I want to read uh, Paige Patterson, a commentary I've been using for this, uh, for this series, a great commentary, and he's a great man of God. Uh, this is, so he presents this, okay? Now, just listen to what he says. First, given the descriptions in the apocalypse of the nature and extent of the judgment of the tribulation under such figures as the four horsemen, the seven-sealed book, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders, and the seven bowls of wrath, to account for how the church could be living in a world in which those things were happening and be kept from that trial becomes difficult. This is not to question the ability of God, who can certainly do anything that he wills, but a fair reading of the text from the words of Jesus previously cited through the apocalypse suggests that the worldwide consequences of the tribulation judgments will be such that perhaps as much as three-quarters of the world's population will die in a seven-year period. The scriptures picture a time of unparalleled natural upheaval, of war and rumors of war, and of political and economic instability and disaster. How exactly could the church expect to be in the world under those kinds of conditions 
And how could any significant understanding of being kept from the hour of trial be meaningful? Add to this other matters mentioned in the introduction, such as the strange omission of the word church from the text of the Apocalypse following chapter 3. Apparently, there is substantial evidence to suggest the possibility that the church is removed prior to the tribulation and that consequently the promise made to the church at Philadelphia in behalf of the Lord's church everywhere is that when God's judgment is unleashed on this earth in unprecedented form, the reward of the church in part will be that it is spared from enduring that experience. Okay, And so that's a good presentation of why he feels like this passage is a promise that the church will be raptured away out of the situation before God pours out His wrath upon the church. Now, of course, this is not then a promise to all Christians because most people believe there will be people getting saved during the tribulation. And so they're obviously not going to get raptured again. He's not going to have multiple raptures every time somebody gets saved. So it seems that some don't get this promise if this promise means there's a rapture beforehand. Okay, does that make sense? Um, Though the Bible does promise all of God's people, absolutely every Christian, they will not experience the wrath of God. So it seems that, in fact, when we get to the Revelation, we'll see that those living that are believers in the tribulation, they will actually have a seal over them, that they will be protected from the wrath of God. They will be protected from the things that God does in these plagues and so forth, okay? So we know that they're going to get protected. Uh, So that's the question. Does this mean we get raptured or does it mean we get protected in the midst of it, okay? So now, for the post-tribulation rapture, I want you to turn to Matthew 24, verse 21. Uh, We don't have time to go into the entire chapter and, and look at it all, but Matthew 24 is a Jesus account of the end times. And he specifically mentions the great tribulation in verse 21. He says, For at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Okay, so that's the great tribulation, obviously, that he's referring to here in Revelation 3.10. But then he goes on, if you skip down uh, to verses 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days. So immediately after the great tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the celestial powers will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So the post-tribulation rapture says this is the rapture, and it says very specifically in verse 29, it's immediately after the tribulation. He even goes on to describe this rapture. Uh, It says, verse 40, Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken, one left. Two men will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. It sure sounds like the rapture. So they're saying that the rapture happens at the end, but God will protect them. Now, one last verse that's very important specifically for our verse Chapter 3, verse 10. John 17, verse 15. The reason why this passage is very important is because it's the only other passage in the New Testament 
with the same Greek phrase, okay? The Greek phrase used where it says here in Revelation 3, uh, verse 10, when he says, I will keep you from the hour. That keep from, the Greek verb is tereo, and then from is ek. The only other place where tereo and ek are used together by John is in John 17, verse 15. And this is what he says. This is his great prayer. He says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That word protect is the same word tereo and then from the evil one. So tereo ek is used there, but very clearly he's not taking them out of the world, but he is protecting them from the evil one and in our passage, from the hour of testing that is going to come over them. So, it's either pre or it's post. I think we can agree on that. But, I I know this sounds weird, but I don't want to leave before the Great Commission is completed. C.T. Studd said this, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I want to be there and I want to be reaching the lost until I die or Jesus comes back. Now, if he comes and he raptures the church ahead of time, I'm going up with you. All right? All right? (laughs) But it seems to me that there's the possibility of both possibilities, so just keep that in mind. Prepare, pray for pre, perhaps, but prepare for post. The most important thing, though, the most important promise, in my opinion, is verse 12. Jesus will make them a pillar in the sanctuary of God. Look at what he says. The victor, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. What he's promising there is that we'll have his name and that this new Jerusalem, we're going to see this in the the end of Revelation where it talks about how the new Jerusalem actually comes down out of heaven to the earth. We're not going to live up there somewhere. We're going to live right here on a refurbished planet with new bodies. That's the promise. But it's with Jesus. We will have his presence all the time. Never again lacking his presence. That is the great, wonderful promise of God. Now, when I received forgiveness and eternal life, my life was changed forever. For the rest of my life, I want nothing more than to bring glory to God and to offer salvation to a lost and dying world. And the two go hand in hand because God gets the most glory when people are saved. And will you help me advance the kingdom of God together? We have, I want to be a great commission church like this church here. And we have 
a plan, okay? You're familiar with this. Every month we share our real activity. It's a way, a different way each month, an opportunity where you can share the love of Jesus in a practical way, where you can kind of step out and try these things. This month specifically, we're asking you to go on prayer walks to go throughout your neighborhood and specifically pray and pray for the lost in your neighborhood that they will come to Christ, that they will be open to the gospel, okay? And that's, that's, that's very simple for this month, okay? So this prayer walk. So we're asking you to do that because there's power in prayer where God opens the door for salvation, okay? So we have our real activities. Get involved in those. Do those things. Try those. We also encourage everyone to be involved in friendship evangelism. This simply means every single person, every single believer, you should be seeking to be friends with unbelievers, okay? Because they're valuable in and of themselves, you want to love on them, but also you're hoping and praying for an opportunity to share Christ with them as well. And so friendship evangelism. Uh, Also, uh, serving in the church as we together reach the lost. You know, not everybody has the gift of evangelism, okay? Not everybody has to do some of the things that we're talking about, but we all have a part to play. And when we're all finding our spiritual gifts, finding out how can I serve the church, how can I be a part of this thing, as Harvest Fellowship, we reach out to change the world for Jesus Christ, okay? And and in fact, we also encourage everyone, discover your style. Everybody has a different style. You don't have to be somebody else, okay? That's, by the way, good news, okay? And, and when you see the different styles, see, most people, there are actually six styles of evangelism recorded in the New Testament, all right? And most people, when they think of these styles, they think of the direct style, like Peter, who was like, in your face, you got to trust in Jesus Christ, you know, and it's that, it's that in your face, you know, going out to strangers and stuff. That's one of the styles. That might not be you. Is that, is that good news? <laughs> okay. All right. I love that, actually, personally. But, you know, but it might not be you. And that's okay. Other people have an intellectual style. This is like Paul. Paul, he debated people. He helped people understand from a reasonable perspective the truths of, of Christianity apologetics. That's what our class is in the evenings right now. It's how to help people understand the difficult things of Christianity, but also to see that Christianity makes the most sense. And so some people, that's how they uh, work. That's their personality. Other people, testimonial. Like the guy who was born blind. Pharisees said to him, you, uh, we know that Jesus is a sinner. And he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, I was blind, and now I see. (laughs) And your story, sharing your story, that's powerful, okay? And so some people, it's just sharing your story in a natural way, okay? So that's testimonial. Other people, it's more interpersonal. You're the kind of person that can throw a party, like Matthew gets a bunch of people who are unbelievers and a bunch of Christians together and just let God work in that, in that environment by throwing a party, okay? It's a great way of doing things. I, I've seen lots of people say that way, all right? So interpersonal. Others are invitational. You can invite people. 
you invite people to church. You invite people to uh, special events like our Harvest of Christmas Joy, uh, um, uh, other things like that. So you, you invite people to Christian concerts or something like that where they hear the gospel, they see Christians and so forth, okay? That's invitational. And then finally, serving. Some people, uh, like Dorcas, she changed people's lives because she was a servant. She just served people. People knew that you're a, know that you're a Christian. They see your love for Jesus. They see you at work, and they go, wow, there must be something different in that person. And then it opens up opportunities. So, so whatever your style is, do it. Get in on it. When we together, as a church, baptize somebody, you might not have been the one who led them to the Lord, but we together made that happen, brought that about by the Holy Spirit because he used the church in the different areas and the different ways, and we all celebrate that together, don't we? It's why we cheer. Because we all had a part in that, and that's what God wants us to see. When we baptize someone and start them on the journey of following Jesus Christ, there's nothing better than that. And, uh, and so we want to be the great, a great commission church like the church at Philadelphia. Let's pray. I want to invite the worship team to come up.